Good morning, church family, and uh, any of those who might be listening to this uh, on the recording or remotely, I don't think we're live today, but um, uh, it's good to see uh, you guys here, and um, it's just good to be together in general um, with other believers. Um, last week, Mike, uh, sermon took us through verses uh, 22 to 37 in chapter 12 of Matthew, and we saw an epic confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees. So if you have a paper Bible or electronic Bible nearby, please locate Matthew chapter 12, where we will continue in verses 38 through 45 today. So Matthew chapter 12, starting at verse 38, we read, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment and with this generation, sorry, with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, someone greater than Jonah is here. This queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And so, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of the person is worse than the first. So also will be, it will be um, with this gen- evil generation. Let's just pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you again for your, your incredible word. Thank you for your, your word being life and truth to us, and it is the only way that we can know um, who you are and what you've done. Um, thank you that you've uh, given it to us to understand who you are and uh, what our sin means, what salvation means, and, and just um, so many other things we need for life and God in this, as the scriptures uh, indicate. And, and just help us to understand now what your word says. Uh, speak uh, through your word, um, speak through my lips, but uh, let them hear yourself and uh, teaching that comes from you alone and not from me. We just ask you blessing on our time in your word and Christian, we ask it. So Jesus has given us an incredible amount of very important information uh, and taught us invaluable lessons up to this point in chapter 12, such as um, being instructed on how to distinguish between those who are true and false disciples, what genuine and false repentance looks like, and understanding how hearts filled with evil can differ so dramatically from hearts changed by God's grace. So overall, chapter 12 highlights the nation of Israel's rejection of their long-awaited Messiah. That's the basic theme of chapter 12. And it is both ironic and unfortunate, but certainly not, un- not unexpected, that we see Jesus, Israel Messiah, in ongoing confrontation with the scribes and Pharisees, the leaders of Israel, uh, throughout chapter 12. Uh, Jesus repeatedly corrects and severely rebukes them for their misinterpretation of God's law self-righteousness, and blasphemous accusations. Uh, Twice he rhetorically asked these religious leaders, have you not read? 
and says, if you had known what this means, because they were the legal scholars of the day. First, a recap both to summarize and reflect on this chapter to see the progression which brought us to today's passage. The first half of this chapter has shown us a progression of unbelief in the face of clear and otherwise undeniable evidence that Jesus is God's Son. God incarnate stands before them, and he has clearly been fulfilling the law and the prophets with many undeniable uh, signs and wonders. Yet, these elite religious leaders who are experts in the law cannot correlate their vast knowledge of God's revelation with the actual arrival of their Messiah, of which it speaks, despite all of his words and deeds. So in verses 1 through 14, they accuse him of violating the Sabbath. Think of the absurdity of the reality of this accusation. Jesus, the incarnate Son, the one by whom all things exist, is being accused by those put in charge of teaching the law of actually breaking it. The same law given by him as creator after bringing everything into existence. So Colossians 1.16 tells us, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And Genesis 2.3 tells us, So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. The Sabbath is for the Lord and the Lord for the Sabbath. It was by him and for him. And then in verses 15 to 21, we read the testimony of the prophet Isaiah, which describes this moment in history when God's beloved servant would appear on earth, proclaiming justice, not quarreling, without uprising or violence, no armies or war, but instead bringing hope for both Jew and Gentile through an unexpected plan of redemption. And then last week in verses 22 to 30, sorry, 22 to 32, uh, when he demonstrated his divine power over both the natural and supernatural at the same time, by healing a blind man, blind and mute, demon-oppressed man, they blasphemed him by their accusation that it was by Satan's power that it was accomplished. The spirit by which he did this and everything else is holy. To accuse God's Son of accomplishing anything by an unholy spirit and having an, any part of evil and to use such power is the ultimate in willfully rejecting the Messiah they had been seeking all of their lives. Accusing Jesus of blasphemy reveals their true nature. Their hearts were evil. Verses 33 to 37 tell us that the, ver the Pharisees' fruit was bad despite any positive appearance they had as religious leaders. The true nature of a person is seen most clearly through what proceeds from the heart, and every one of us is accountable for what proceeds from our own heart. Our speech justifies us, either by condemnation for our sin or confirming our repentance and acceptance of Christ and his forgiveness. And Jesus, in humility and grace, confirms who he is with an incredible variety of miraculous and powerful demonstrations. But in their pride and hardness of heart, hate and jealousy ensue and evil actions follow. They refuse him and conspire to kill him. And as we noted last week, we see the blasphemy against Jesus, his rejection as the Israel Messiah by the nation's representatives is now an irreversible certainty. Instead of what should be overwhelming awe, the leaders of the nation of Israel continue in their unbelief. 
not worship. Turning the people against him and not only consciously reject him, but further scheme as how they will put Jesus to death. So in verse 38 of today's passage, we read, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. At this point, you must just say, you can't be serious. After healing blind, mute, lame, deaf, leprous, deformed, fevered, and all sorts of other sickness, and even raising people who are dead, they now approach him and demand the sign. And don't miss the irony here. The elite teachers of Israel calling Jesus whom they despised teacher. Be assured it was only for the sake of the people watching and listening and to help uphold their false pretense. They by no means recognized anyone outside their elite circle as qualified legal experts. Their reference to Jesus as teacher is filled with sarcasm and hypocrisy, actually. As far as they were concerned, he was another false teacher and a heretic who blasphemed God. And please understand, this particular request for a sign was different. They demanded a demonstration so profoundly powerful and dramatic that the globe would be in an utter uproar, terrified and willing to submit to him in awe and fear, themselves maybe included. Some believe that they wanted to see a powerful cosmic demonstration of God's power through Jesus as validation. One that would make the moon disappear, or perhaps, or the stars align with a clear change of course, the constellations changing, or the sun to stop shining on demand. And by the way, little did they know what was about to occur at noon in a few short days, when the great cosmic demonstration would take place. The sun would indeed stop casting light on the earth for three hours. God indeed would give them a sign or two but not as they demand it from Jesus right now. Up till now, the scribes and Pharisees had tolerated Jesus and his disciples and the large crowds that followed, but they hated him with every fiber of their being because of their sin and self-righteousness. They were proud and jealous and filled with unbelief. They despised his popularity, his nonconformance to their rules, his display of supernatural wisdom and power, and the intent of their hearts was only evil, confirming what we read in Genesis 6-5, which says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Jesus calls them out on it all, and they hated him all the more for it. And it wasn't just them that behaved in this manner, because all people who simply appear godly, without trusting Christ do the same to one degree or another. Their hearts and minds betray them when they are tested in this life. Anyone who rejects the gospel and the need for Christ as their Lord and Savior is in the same position as these Pharisees. Regardless of piety, religion, good works, strong beliefs, without true repentance and genuine belief in your heart concerning Christ, you remain in your sin, and God will not accept you or forgive you. Romans 10, 9 says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So Jesus, knowing their hearts and all that they thought, told them clearly that they would receive no sign except the sign of Jonah. The text says in verse 39, But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. He does not mince words either, and he 
doesn't just address these leaders, but includes everyone in that generation, calling them evil and adulterous. Jesus called the generation evil because of their spiritual condition, lost and unregenerate and steeped in their depravity, and adulterous because they were given the oracles of God, the law was entrusted to Jewish people, and the prophets were their forefathers. They had broken the vows of the covenant God had established with their forefathers and the nation of Israel. Hosea was a clear reminder of that fact, which they conveniently ignored or explained away or just outright denied. They, of course, were seemingly better than their ancestors who at times broke their covenant with God by the worship of idols. Yet this generation had traded idols of gold and stone for idols of tradition and laws. 613 of them, to be precise, which they had added to what God had given them. Because he knew their hearts, he knew of their plans to kill him, and they asked for one more sign, knowing he would refuse. But they did so to trap him and find justification in sentencing him to death in a few short days. The more they tried to attack him, the more he exposed their intent and the depravity of their hearts, and the closer they came to finalizing their plans to kill him. As much as they tried from the outset, they failed to trap him in his words or deeds or in accusations of breaking the law. He did not break the law. He did not profane the Sabbath, nor use Satan's power to heal and deliver. His teaching was 100% accurate, aligning with every law the prophet everything the law and the prophet spoke of. After all, he is the word, embodied in the flesh, and cannot contradict his own character. They only cared about their own reputation, which had been taking a massive hit and was only getting worse each day. And their challenge of a sign is flatly denied by Jesus. Of course, Jesus, being fully God, could do whatever he chose according to his will, according to God's will, actually. But it must align with the foreordained plans of God, his plan of redemption, which he had established long ago. And God had different and far better plans to come. Besides, no one has the authority to make demands of God, certainly not as sinful creatures who have just accused him of blasphemy. Instead, they are told to look to the sign of Jonah. What does this mean? Verse 40 says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And if you remember reading the account of Jonah, and possibly even recall the sermon series we did on Jonah a couple of years ago, you should realize the foreshadowing that takes place in that historical account. Jesus here validates that account of Jonah, and he confirms that surviving three days and nights in the belly of a whale which should certainly, uh, which should result in certain death, was not just a story, but was about to become a picture of what, uh, sorry, a picture that describes the far more profound reality of his own death and resurrection. Jonah typified what would soon happen to Jesus and would be the last, and this would be the last and most important sign for the human race for all time and eternity. This last sign would come from heaven as divine confirmation of his messiahship and bring about our salvation. And sadly, we know that this would still not convince many. The account of Luke 16 of the rich man and Lazarus sadly speaks to this. When the rich man in hell begs Abraham to warn his living siblings of the horror of separation from God and experiencing his wrath. 
In Luke 16, the rich man says, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He, Abraham, said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And with his confirmation that the sign of Jonah would foreshadow his own death and resurrection, Jesus gives a final warning of impending judgment before God. He contrasts their response with that of the Ninevites, and it is very ominous. We read in verse 41, The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jonah reluctantly preached repentance to the people of Nineveh, a city of notoriously brutal pagan Gentiles, with no knowledge about God, or his word, or his covenant, or his law. And Jonah did so without performing a single miracle. He showed up and gave a message, and upon hearing the truth, they repented, the whole city, king included. What a lesson and reminder this is for us. It is our job to tell the truth of God's word, to make known the gospel, and the rest is up to God. He changes hearts by the hearing of his word. They believed God's message of salvation and received forgiveness and reconciliation with God that day. This is how it still works today. Let's not forget. Contrast this with the people Jesus is speaking to, privileged people beyond measure. Those of Jewish heritage, with forefathers as prophets of God for generations, experts entrusted with God's word and way of salvation, teachers of what of that which spoke of him, the Messiah, and they utterly reject him, and in doing so, the God of Israel himself. Yet these scribes and Pharisees were fully convinced that they were highly favored by God and that Jesus was a heretic. From a human perspective, if these teachers were not getting it, what hope was there for anyone to escape judgment for sin? Someone greater than Jonah, indeed. Far greater than they can imagine. He gives them countless signs, profound truths, parables, and did so with humility and grace and love in order for them to understand these things. It never ceases to bog my mind how spiritual blindness affects all of us and how only the only remedy is the truth of God's word and the working of God in one's life to bring sight to the blind and life to the dead. Uh, life to the dead. Um, and in case they needed further confirmation and warning of the danger and consequences of rejecting the Messiah, they are told the following. In verse 42, the Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment in this generation with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, someone greater than Solomon is here. This is the Queen of Sheba, a historically famous Gentile queen from Lower Arabia, about 1,900 kilometers southeast of Israel, who had extreme wealth. This woman of royal lineage was a pagan, and yet she set out on an incredibly long journey across the Arabian desert with her necessarily large entourage to seek the famed King Solomon, King of Israel. Known to be the wisest man on earth, she sought the wisdom he had received from God that was made known throughout the world. There is no knowledge of an invitation given to her, and it was at great cost to her. Uh, more importantly, this journey came at great risk in order to receive the highly valued truth and wisdom of the living God. What do we risk 
and how far do we go both to know and share the truths of God's word of Today, in our society, we don't have any of the obstacles. Uh, we have all the technology, and we don't have real persecution. What stops us? The people of Israel and surrounding nations all knew about Jesus. His claims to be God's son. Obviously, rumors spread quickly, and gossip happens. And they had no need to travel far, spend all that they had, or truly sacrifice anything. Now when face to face with the Messiah, they actually reject him. Someone greater indeed than Solomon is here, and wisdom is nowhere to be found among the leaders. And twice we read in the passage is this interesting phrase. It's it says, Will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. And it was said twice concerning the Ninevites and the Queen of the South. And I just want to take a, a moment for a couple of um, interesting thoughts about this. Uh, this week, I had uh, two particular streams of thought go through my mind as I was studying this chapter. And I do not claim any uh, biblical, uh, explicit biblical support uh, for them. But from our current knowledge of science and physics, it can, be, it can uh, seriously make you pause and think about the potential reality of, of how God has designed the cosmos. Um, while listening to a recent sermon by a well-respected Bible teacher, he noted something similar uh, to the ideas I was having, and it helped me to consider my thoughts more deeply. The first, the text seems to suggest that the particular generations arrive at the time, I'm sorry, the particular generations alive at the time of the events that occurred with Jonah and Solomon, Jonah, sorry, yeah, Jonah and Solomon, would be present at the judgment. If this is the case, I think it is very plausible. It, it even has a genius to it, and it's completely practical at the same time. Because when God resurrects all people who have ever lived to stand before him in the judgment, being raised to stand with the individuals you know from your generation actually makes sense. How impossible is it for anyone standing before the all-powerful and all-knowing God to be surrounded not only by angelic witnesses, but your own peers who you know and have lived with. All truths will come to light, and there will be no denying at all whether true or truth and righteous. Sorry, and there will be no denying all whether true and righteous, and all that does condemn. And the second thought I had was uh, along the similar lines. It's a bit more obscure, but I think it is likewise plausible. Um, Scientists claim from the beginning of time that light and sound travel billions of light years through space across the seemingly endless galaxies of the cosmos. They say any word that you've ever spoken goes out into the time and space and travels eternally through, through the galaxies. Um, and, and think of the giant extraterrestrial antennas that we have that currently exist to uh, listen to the various frequencies in the galaxy that, that have been traveling for millions of light years seeking evidence uh, that's outside of Earth, that looking for extraterrestrials, want to hear um, a message sent a million years ago from them. And the thought occurred to me from, um, from last week's verses that Mike had uh, taught on that every idle word we have ever spoken has gone out as sound vibrations into the universe and is traveling through it forever. Now, think of our current ability to capture and record sound and video digitally with ease on a cell phone in your pocket, something which previous generations would never consider possible. 
Video and audio recordings, internet posts, journals, messages, texts, and much more are recorded and kept on servers today and are out there to justify or condemn us, which can be terrifying. Think of cancel culture right now. Something you said 20 years ago uh, is brought back right now because it's, it's, it's been recorded and it's used against you. And now think of every word ever spoken being out there literally in the universe, and if it can be retrieved, which God can do, uh, to confirm our allegiance to Christ or our opposition to him. Kind of uh, intriguing and terrifying at the same time. Um, so um, now we'll transition to the second portion of our passage on the return of the unclean spirit, um, which doesn't seem directly related to the passage we just saw, but it's related overall in chapter 12. It's, it's concerning morality. And um, I'm sure it has always been this way, but I would venture to say that more than ever in history, the current hyper-focus in the media and on the internet, in our society, with the social justice movement, um, uh, which seeks to change all current standards of morality, um, be clear, there are um, real historical problems and issues and oppression today. Uh, we don't deny that. There always has been and actually um, far worse things uh, probably have happened in past history than we see today, but we think that there's crimes against humanity by something you say or think. Um, and we as believers are called to uh, stand up for the poor, for sure. Scripture tells us to stand up for the poor, the marginalized, the imprisoned, the, the widows, uh, the orphans and others with, with justice, with true justice that is rooted in truth, God's truth. And as much as you hear today, there's no such thing as your truth. If you ever heard that phrase, your truth, only God's truth. And that's part of the problem too. Uh, yet our current society is obsessed with pushing a moral revolution that seeks to destroy all societal standards that have a biblical basis. They're very focused on getting rid of moral standards that are biblically based. Morals without a right relationship with God and which ignores or opposes his clear instruction to us. Somewhat counterintuitively, outward and superficial appearances of morality can actually be far worse and more dangerous than blatantly immoral lifestyle. Remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount about the problem of outward righteousness, outward morality. The Pharisees were moralists to the extreme. Uh, they had added the 613 laws to the commandments of God, whereas Jesus summed up God's law in only two. Their laws were very onerous and all-consuming, self-righteous and sinful, and it kept them from belief in the gospel. Their own sin wasn't a problem for their system of belief. They were righteous and moral in their own minds. So when Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. That's Matthew 5.20. And when he said that to them, they were furious. They didn't see their sinfulness and therefore didn't seek salvation. Their system was good and safe and moral in their minds. Morality on its own is self-righteousness. At least someone who sees their immorality can see a need for true righteousness and inner transformation. And verses 43 to 45 that we... Um, read earlier, described the danger of religious and moral reform without truly knowing God. This parable describes a demonic, unclean spirit which a man had been freed from. We are not told how or why, but its presence was gone, and it had passed through waterless places, seeking rest, but without success. 
This phrase is interesting in that it speaks of barrenness and desert, which are waterless places. Also because the spirit was seeking rest. And my own thought is that the banishment of fallen angels from God's presence created a constant wandering and seeking a home, but we don't really know. Um, Scripture describes the many instances where a demonic spirit seeks and resides in humans or animals. In such accounts, there often seems to be a preference for bodily existence. And it has been suggested that maybe this is because it permitted the evil spirit a way of expressing itself in a physical living being, which was not otherwise possible in the spiritual realm. Um, we don't know for sure. But without a dwelling place, this particular demon, who we are told is not one of the worst of its kind, sought to return to its former residence, the home from which it came. Note the claim of ownership, and it regains residence easily and upon return found the house clean, swept, and in order, but it brought seven other spirits worse than itself to reside with it. Another interesting thing we learn here is that there are apparently degrees of wickedness even among the evil uh, and demonic spirits of the world. The house, or the person who was clean, swept, and in order, seems to suggest that there was a moral reform in their life. They were free from the influence and presence of the wicked spirit. We see people in our day who make all kinds of efforts to reform themselves morally, emotionally, uh, spiritually, physically, um, in order to rid themselves of bad habits, lifestyles, improve their relationships or their circumstances. But self-cleansing reform is not sufficient nor permanent without gaining a redeemed relationship with God through saving faith in Christ. And sadly, it is probable that many who were oppressed by evil spirits and delivered by Jesus never recognized and turned to him as their Lord and Savior never placing their faith in him to save them from sin and only had temporary relief. Recall the ten lepers who Jesus healed and only one returned to him in gratitude and faith to recognize who he was and what he had done for him. Our sinful human nature must find deliverance through repentance and faith alone in Christ alone. Reforming our behavior is temporary at best and morality alone is self-deceiving if we ignore our sinful condition our need for forgiveness and reconciliation with God. Just because someone lacks outward manifestations of sin doesn't mean they are free from the power, presence, and consequences of that sin. If a person is not indwelt by Christ, they are a potential residence for spiritual wickedness. And although they live with moral appearances, they live Christless lives. Without his righteousness, self-righteousness lives Search, search, self righteous lives are not sensitive to the soul-destroying danger of sin. And one of the worst forms of ungodliness is found in being religious. Legalism is alive and well today, as it was when the Pharisees walked the earth. I have seen it countless times, and it indeed is insidious. Uh, it has a form of godliness, but denies the power of God. And if you remember what 2 Timothy 3.5 says, uh, it speaks of this, and we read that having the appearance of godliness but denying his power, avoid such people, is what Paul said to Timothy. Morality, even biblically based, without salvation in Christ, drives people away from God, and they lose a sense of their sinfulness. The immoral pagans did not seek to kill Jesus. 
It was the moral religious elites that did. You must ask yourself why that is. What does this say about the human condition? Peter well knew what it was like to be a victim of evil influence, sin, immorality, and living without Christ. And he experienced the consequences firsthand to his own horror when he denied Christ three times. And this is um, why he can say in 2 Peter 2.20, For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world, through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. Knowing about Jesus is not the same as knowing him. Reformation without salvation and transformation means a certain return to sin without true spiritual change. This applies to the nation of Israel as it does to the individuals. This evil generation is comprised of many sinners who think utter transformation is sufficient in this life, but it will not justify us before God. Inner transformation can and must take place, and Jesus has made it clear of what God requires of each of us to be reconciled to himself. Look to the sign of Jonah. Closely examine the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, wherein you will find the remedy for your sin. Once again, Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you for the truths, the profound truths that it, it gives us, um, the hope that we are given through the sign of Jonah um, and through the cross of Christ, uh, which it speaks of. Thank you for his life, death, burial, and resurrection. Thank you that we will soon celebrate it through the celebration of uh, Easter uh, globally. We just uh, thank you for the profound thoughts about him. When we think of that, um, we just pray that you would help us to understand this text and apply it to our lives, examine our hearts to know whether we are in Christ, whether we truly know him. And we just thank you for uh, what we can learn from you and, and thank you for being able to be your servants and to be loved by the King. And we praise you in Jesus' precious name.